This is David Barsamian of Alternative Radio, and you're listening to KBOO Portland. Tune in to KBOO on Saturday, February 17th from 1 p.m. to 5 p.m. for a special live remote broadcast of Keep Alive the Dream. Keep Alive the Dream is an annual celebration of the life and legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., this year's event includes guest speakers and musical performances from the MLK All-Star Band, Eli Hardy, and more. Again, that's a special live broadcast of Keep Alive the Dream, Saturday, February 17th, from 1 p.m. to 5 p.m., here on your community radio station, KBOO, Portland. Plugged in on KBOO is a radio show dedicated to underground electronic music. The show is hosted by DJ Tronic and features Deep House, House, Tech House, Techno, German Bass, Breakbeats, Future Bass, Down Tempo, and more. Plugged in frequently has local producers and DJs on the show, and we provide info about upcoming events in Portland, including free ticket giveaways. Plugged in airs the first and third Friday of every month from 10 p.m. to 12 a.m. Pacific Time. Hi, this is Dwight Yoakam, and you're listening to KBOO. Oh, I wish there's a mole in the ground. There's a mole in the ground, and I'd root the mountains down. Oh, wish there's a mole in the ground. Good morning, and welcome to the Old Mole Variety Hour on KBOO Portland, your volunteer-powered, member-supported, nonprofit community radio station. I'm your host today, Fran Michelle. On January 22, 1973, the Supreme Court released its decision on Roe v. Wade, now overturned by the 2022 Dobbs decision. This episode of The Old Mole looks at the history of abortion access in Portland and at the broader context of reproductive justice, including problems arising from capitalism, imperialism, and racism, as well as at modes of resistance. During the century that preceded Roe v. Wade in 1973, abortion was illegal in Oregon. Even so, pregnant people consistently sought and obtained abortions, including from licensed physicians. But whether the practice was officially tolerated or suppressed fluctuated significantly over that period. In our first segment today, we'll hear from Mole Patricia Kulberg, a retired primary care physician and author of the novel Girl in the River, about the politics of sex and reproduction in Portland during the 30s and 40s. She'll be talking with Norm Diamond about the economic and institutional factors that determined access to a safe abortion during an era when abortion was against the law, and about lessons we might learn 
about the current-day assault on reproductive rights. But reproductive justice is more than access to abortion. It also means the right to have children and the rights and resources to raise them and care for them. For many indigenous people, that right was undermined by efforts of the federal government to destroy tribal identity and force assimilation through its boarding school initiative for Native American children and through the promotion of adoption of Native American children by non-Native families. Similar histories can be found in other settler colonial nations, including Australia and Canada. In 1978, the U.S. passed the Indian Child Welfare Act, a federal law that seeks to keep Native American children with Native American families. In our second segment today, Matt Witt tells us about Little Bird, a Canadian televisual series that dramatizes the experience of an indigenous woman taken from her birth family and who, as an adult, seeks to find and reconnect with them. The apparent attempts to homogenize the nation also involve the construction of others and scapegoats, modes of dividing the mass of people from each other, keeping workers from organizing against exploitive forces, and creating what historian Carol Anderson calls a vast rightless labor pool. In our last segment today, Jan Hocken talks with Dr. Anderson about the racist roots of U.S. fascism in the history of Jim Crow, about the history of white insurrections against democracy in the U.S., and about the long-term struggle for voting rights and the need to engage with a flawed political system in order to push it toward a more egalitarian and equitable world. As always, you'll be able to find the podcast of the show and its segments on our website at kboo.fm slash Hour, where you can also find a link to subscribe to our show or to get in touch with us. And remember, you can support your listener-sponsored, volunteer-powered, nonprofit community radio station by clicking on the red Donate tab on the KBOO app or in the upper right corner of the webpage at kboo.fm. First up, we turn to Patricia Kulberg talking with Norm Diamond about factors shaping access to safe abortion when abortion was against the law and about lessons we might learn for the present assault on reproductive rights. This is Norm Diamond. I'm in the studio this morning with my usual and longtime producer, Patricia Kulberg. But Patricia is here for a different purpose this morning. Today is the 50th anniversary of the Supreme Court decision, Roe v. Wade, on abortion. We're going to take a look back at the history of abortion in Oregon specifically, and talk about some of the lessons, perhaps, for our current struggles. Good morning, Patricia. Good morning, and thanks for having me on. Patricia was a medical doctor for 20 years, was medical director of Multnomah County here in Oregon. She's the author of a wonderful set of memoirs on the ragged edge of medicine, and as well, and very much to the point today, the author of an acclaimed novel, Girl in the River, that looks back, among other things, at the the history of abortion. It touches on access to abortion and suppression of that access here in Portland during the, well, from the 30s into the 1950s. So maybe start us out, Patricia, with a look back at the history of abortion, both its legal possibilities, but of course that doesn't, that doesn't really cover um, the access that women had and were denied. Well, that's right. And when I was researching for my novel, Norm, one of the things that struck me was that in the entire century leading up to Roe v. Wade, abortion was illegal in Oregon. And during that whole time, however, women sought and got abortions, not only from lay providers, but also from licensed physicians. In other words, the fact that it was illegal did not necessarily stop women from getting abortions. Even though the laws never changed during that period of time, what is interesting to me was how much the practice of abortion was either tolerated or was suppressed. For example, there was a five-year period uh, early in the 20th century during the progressive era when there was a five-fold increase in the prosecution of abortion providers. This is the progressive era. That's right. And they're suppressing. 
abortion? The progressive movement was largely a white middle-class anti-corruption movement, and there were many in that movement, particularly women, who viewed abortion as a vice. And so they were anti-abortionists, even though they might be feminist in other ways. Well, we're um, going to have to think then of progressive in quotes from now on. Yes, we are. Uh, and then during World War II, abortions were readily available and safe abortions, uh, mostly provided by doctors. And then right after the war, of course, the worst crackdown on the availability of abortion appeared since it had been made illegal in Oregon. So I thought that was very interesting, and I kind of wanted to understand what was going on that created those differences. So again, the legal status stayed the same That's right. for a long period. Okay, so our question then is, what were the factors that, that varied? Because we know that access to abortion varied so much during that period. Well, there were a number of players. One of the biggest was, in fact, the medical establishment. There were certain politicians, there was the legal establishment, there were churches, there were feminist activists, all these folks played a role. And then, of course, there were social and economic factors that shaped public attitudes about abortion. And these attitudes, in turn, shaped the legal response to abortion. So it's a very complicated story. And what I wanted to start out with, because of their very central role, was the medical establishment. And their varying attitudes and varying influence as well, and varying drives, I take it. Right, and I should say at the outset that there wasn't necessarily a, a correspondence between the medical leadership and the actual rank and file, if you can call them that, doctors. Those interests were not 100% aligned. I want to go back to the abortion law that was enacted here in 1854 in Oregon, and it was part of an AMA, or American Medical Association, campaign that was aimed at the suppression of midwifery. And what the profession was trying to do at that time was establish their professional control over all aspects of healthcare, and midwives were a big competitor for them. So they made it illegal here in Oregon in 1854, abortion that is. But up until the 20th century, there were very few actual prosecutions. And that was largely because of ambiguities in the law. But let me say that during that time, white and wealthy women mostly got their abortions from doctors and the poor and women of color were getting their abortions from unlicensed providers. Just to clarify one thing, I've associated my own perhaps limited understanding midwifery with delivering babies. So midwives also were doing abortions. Oh yeah, they provided really the, the majority back in the 19th century, the majority of reproductive care for women, even for uh, wealthy women. And so they were the ones who were familiar with women's bodies, with instrumentation of women's bodies, and they were the ones that were intimate with women and were willing to provide those abortions. And doctors cementing their role in kind of the hierarchy of medical caregivers then wanted to, to suppress that practice on the part of, of midwives. That's right. And so what you find during this period, that when there were prosecutions, it was primarily when the woman was single, even though most abortions were performed on married women. The prosecutions also focused almost exclusively on the unlicensed lay providers, not on doctors. And they also happened primarily when the woman died. And then we get to the progressive era. And during that time, there was a renewed AMA campaign to drive out so-called quacks from their ranks, including the abortionists. Anyone who wasn't a, a licensed doctor, in other words. Well, or people that they considered to be the rogue practitioners, even if they were 
licensed. And what is interesting is that the prosecutions during this particular roughly 20-year period were nearly all of licensed doctors, not the unlicensed practitioners. The one other thing I want to mention during that era was the 1910 Flexner Report, and this was a very influential report that looked at the training and licensure and oversight of physicians that sought to professionalize the practice of medicine, and it very explicitly called for the banning of midwifery practice altogether. They managed that or pursued that through various public campaigns, and the result of that was that in 1900, where half of women in America were getting their babies delivered by midwives, by 1920 or so, that had dropped to 15%. So their campaign was successful. They got what they wanted. And so by the 1920s, organized medicine really wasn't so interested in suppressing abortion anymore. Anymore. That's really interesting. So cementing their role, again, at the top of the hierarchy, doctors drew on both the criminal justice system and on public relations campaigns. Yeah, exactly. So do you have a question? I mean, you can pursue the history, but I was going to ask about the response to all that and the role played, especially by feminists. Well, feminists played a big role. One of the early abortion providers in Portland was Marie Equi, who was allied with anarchists and labor interests in Portland, and she provided abortion services to poor women and working women, and she often provided them for free, and she was part of a small group of women physicians who were providing reproductive services for all women. And this kind of inaugurated what I think of as the golden age of abortion in Portland, when most of the abortions were being provided by skilled, licensed physicians. And it was a time during which those doctors were refining their techniques. The suction technique that is the standard in abortion care now was actually invented at that time by a Portland physician by the name of George Watts. The other thing that happened during, during that time is the expansion of the idea of a therapeutic exception, which had been written into the 1854 law, which meant that you could legally provide abortion if it threatened the woman's life. But during the 20s and 30s, this so-called therapeutic exception was expanded to include social factors, like if the woman had too many children, if she was had an abusive husband, if... Um, she was too poor. So one consequence of that is that during that time, the complication rates from abortion dropped way down. And if you looked at the women who were hospitalized for complications related to abortion, two-thirds of them were women who had attempted to abort themselves. And the other third were primarily due to unlicensed providers. And so you had a, a, this kind of golden age of, of abortion, which continued until the post-war crackdown and the election of the mayor known as Dottie Duguid Lee. So golden age, you're thinking of as defined in at least a couple of ways. One was access, but the other was the vast increase in safety of the medical procedure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Portland was um, a little unusual during that era in the very low numbers of complications that, of abortion and the very low uh, number of deaths from abortion. Okay, well, I know about Dottie Duguid Lee and the access to abortion that she railed against, campaigned against, primarily from your novel. So, <laughs> right. so fill us in. Before I talk too much about Dottie Duguid Lee, I want to go back and pick up the story because there are some other women activists that, that fit into this story. And the first one I want to mention is a Dr. Esther Pohl, who was health officer for Multnomah County in 1907. And she was a, an important uh, suffragist, but she was also one of those progressive era politicians 
who saw abortion as a vice that threatened the social order and the lives of poor women. And she was instrumental in one of the very first prosecutions of an abortionist who was responsible for the death of a 25-year-old woman back in the early 1900s. And then there were other physicians, women physicians, with a very different attitude about abortion, including Dr. Marie Equi, whom I mentioned before. But she and the group of women that she, doctors that she was allied with, interestingly enough, were not very active in terms of promoting access to abortion rights because it really really wasn't much of an issue in Portland. What they were mostly active around was to get birth control legalized. Now, birth control wasn't exactly illegal during that time. You could buy a condom and use it. But there were these Comstock laws that were passed in the 19th century, which outlawed the transport of any kind of pornographic material, which included any kind of birth control device across state lines. And as you can imagine, that really suppressed the access to birth control devices. So most feminists were involved in the campaigns to help legalize birth control. No one had much of a stake in suppressing abortion. And even the churches were more focused on anti-birth control uh, activism, as was the medical profession, again, because they wanted to exercise control over all aspects of women's health. And if a woman can manage her reproductive interests through buying stuff at the local drugstore, the doctors lost control. This was through the Depression, of course, and the war years when you can imagine for different reasons, the demand for abortion was very high. And this is when Ruth Barnett comes on the scene. And she was trained by uh, George Watts, the guy who invented the suction technique. And she became the premier abortionist of the Northwest, very flamboyant figure. During her roughly four-decade career, provided something like 40,000 abortions and had no deaths during that time. She was a remarkable practitioner, extremely careful and skilled. And what I remember from the novel, which I assume is true to history, was that she also provided care gratis to people who couldn't afford. Women would come in, poor women, and she considered this an important service. Oh, yeah. And she would sometimes even go down into the seedier parts of town and provide abortions to prostitutes, which is a nice segue into the last thing that I want to talk about briefly is the rise of organized crime during World War II. And in fact, we had a very corrupt mayor at that time, Earl Riley, and that in fact, was what brought Dottie Lee, Dottie Duguid Lee, into power as an anti-corruption candidate. And she was the one who then orchestrated a crackdown on gambling, drug trafficking, bootlegging, prostitution, and eventually in 1951 started raiding the abortion providers. And this, of course, was in the context of the post-war pronatalist views and the push to get women out of the workplace, back into the kitchens, back into the nurseries, producing babies. And that's what's meant by pronatalist, of course, is producing more and more babies. So the consequence of that is that the, the licensed practitioners fled the field, abortion was pushed into the back alley, the complication rates soared, and Then, of course, everyone kind of knows the history from there with the rise of feminism in the 1960s and the campaigns for abortion rights that eventually led up to Roe v. Wade. Okay, that's the history. 
Did you want to say anything more about the social economic factors? Well, I think the, they played out mostly during the Depression when women would um, be fired if they were pregnant. They were losing jobs at a greater rate than men. The marriage rate plummeted. People couldn't afford babies. And when women got pregnant, they very often just did not have the means to have another child. During the war, they didn't want to have babies because they wanted to go to work. And then after the war, of course, there was the push to produce more babies, get women out of the workplace. And so correlates very much with the crackdown on abortion. Okay, you've taken us to Roe v. Wade. Bring us to the present. What, what do we make of all that history? What's the significance of it? What are the lessons for now, this attempt again to put women back in the home and the kitchen? And I want to emphasize the fact that how safe and accessible abortion is does not coincide exactly with its legality and that there are many more forces at play during this era when it is increasingly illegal. It's important to understand, I think, whose interests are served by having abortion legal and what kinds of messages might resonate with different groups? What, it, what is the most strategic way to organize for abortion rights? And to recognize that the local environment plays a huge role. And the activism has to be tailored to where you're at. These sound like criteria that would apply to every form of activism. True. And of course, it'd be great if the struggle around abortion, the struggle for female empowerment were also part of, of course, the larger struggle for all of all of the kinds of grievances, all the kind of, of alternative vision that we have. I've been talking with Patricia Kohlberg. Thanks again, Patricia. This is Norm Diamond for the Old Mole Variety Hour. Thank you, Norm. Don't lie to me about I love your wives when the rich have access and the working class dies. This a call in for all of us to unite in a section of identities and plight. Fight for the right to choose when to give life. This is sacred knowledge and it's our birthright. I am J. Rowe. Our love for our children is not on trial. Every child is a wanted child. That was some of the song I Am Jane Roe by Coco Pela. And before that, Patricia Kulberg and Norm Diamond talking about the history of abortion access in Oregon before it was legal and what we can learn from that past. You are listening to the Old Mole Variety Hour on KBOO Portland. I'm your host today, Fran Michelle. As Dr. Kulberg points out, Safety does not require legality, nor does legality assure access. In the years between Roe and Dobbs, pregnant people faced not only increasing legal restrictions like requirements for parental consent and waiting periods, but also problems of cost, location, and harassment. They responded with self-managed abortion, clinic defense, and abortion funds, as discussed in Angela Hume's 2023 book, Deep Care, The Radical Activists Who Provided Abortions, Defied the Law, and Fought to Keep the Clinics Open, itself discussed in Lizzie Chadburn's article, History Shows Community Solidarity is Essential for Making Abortion Accessible, published earlier this month in Truthout and linked on the webpage for this episode of The Old Mole. Later on today's show, we'll hear from Jan Hawken, whose films include the 2019 documentary Our Bodies, Our Doctors, about some of the physicians dedicated to providing abortion in far-flung, dangerous places like Kansas. That film is available to stream on many platforms, including for free through the Multnomah County Library's Canopy service. Today, Jan will be talking with award-winning historian Carol Anderson about white nationalism and fascism in America and the need for voting rights and civic engagement to push for a more just and equal society. But first, in our next segment, we hear from Oregon writer and photographer Matt Witt about the Canadian series Little Bird and the larger history of settler colonial states taking indigenous children from their families. This is Matt Witt for the Old Mole Variety Hour. The six-part TV series called Little Bird is one of the highest quality dramas I have seen in years and is so believable and authentic 
that I often felt like I was watching a top-of-the-line documentary. Little Bird, which can be streamed on PBS and other streaming services, was produced, acted, and directed by professional actors with roots in various tribes in Canada. The series, which frequently shifts between past and present, begins by showing us a family with four young children on a Cree reservation in Saskatchewan in the late 1960s. They don't have electricity or running water, but we see their strong and loving connections with each other, their culture, and their natural environment. Then three of the four children are suddenly ripped from their home by the provincial government to be put up for adoption by white families outside the community, part of a campaign to eradicate indigenous culture and assimilate native children. Fast forward 18 years and we see one of those children, now a 23-year-old woman who was adopted by a Jewish family in Montreal and renamed Esther Rosenblum. She has a loving adopted mother who lost her own family in the Holocaust. Esther is engaged to a good Jewish boy and has nearly finished her first year of law school. And yet, events prompt her to travel to Saskatchewan to learn how she came to be part of the Rosenblum family and to try to locate her birth parents and siblings. Few characters in this series are caricatures or stereotypes, and the viewer is as unsure as Esther is about what she is going to find. Did her parents willingly put her up for adoption? Are they still alive? Will Child Protective Services share information about her siblings? What kind of homes were those siblings sent to, and what kind of lives are they living now? What will happen to her relationship with her adoptive mother and her fiancé as more of the past is uncovered? And how will Esther Rosenblum, born Beijing Littlebird, figure out her own identity and where she belongs? I won't spoil the drama by telling you the answers to those questions, but I can tell you that the series draws on real events that began in the 1950s, in which provincial governments took thousands of indigenous children from their families for adoption outside. Official reports many years later found that many of those children suffered severely without their communities, and some were beaten, sexually abused, or exploited for their labor. Worse yet, the problem still continues today. Government figures have shown that indigenous children are at least six times as likely to be taken from their families as other children. And sadly, this phenomenon has occurred in the United States as well. A congressional committee found that from the 1950s to the 1970s, more than a third of all indigenous children were removed from their homes. In 1978, Congress finally passed the Indian Child Welfare Act, designed to give tribal families more rights and to make it more likely that children who are placed in foster care remain in their own extended families or communities. That law was challenged before the U.S. Supreme Court just last year, and while a limited ruling left it in place for now, some justices signaled that they could find in a future case that the law discriminates against non-Indigenous families looking for children to adopt. In fact, Justices Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito were ready to overturn the law now. According to Alito, Congress, quote, does not have the power to sacrifice the best interests of vulnerable children to promote the interests of the tribes in maintaining membership, end quote. There may be more legal maneuvering ahead, but in the meantime, Supreme Court justices and other Americans ought to watch the series called Little Bird and see what separating families and communities means in human terms. Even for those of us who thought they knew something about this before, Little Bird is a riveting experience that is not soon forgotten. Inu <laughs> Yarni 
You just heard some of Canadian First Nation singer Elisa Pia singing Inuniaravit from her album Inuktitut, which consists of covers of popular songs translated into Inuit. That one was a translation of Born to be Alive, originally recorded in 1978 by Patrick Hernandez. Before that, you heard Matt Witt recommending the Canadian series Little Bird, which dramatizes the experience and consequences of Canada's policies of removing Native children from their families and placing them with non-Indigenous families. You are listening to the Old Mole Variety Hour on KBOO Portland. I'm Fran Michelle. You'll be able to find this show, its individual segments, and links to more information about each by visiting the website kboo.fm slash Hour. As Matt noted, what the Supreme Court giveth, the Supreme Court can taketh away. The Indian Child Welfare Act still stands so far, but Roe v. Wade does not. The relatively progressive laws and legal rulings of the 1970s came out of long histories of struggle, and the right-wing movements of today also have long and sometimes shifty political roots. For instance, as Randall Balmer argues in his book Bad Faith, Race, and the Rise of the Religious Right, white evangelical groups did not oppose abortion until they discovered in the 1970s that it was a more acceptable issue to organize with than their real goal, which was racial segregation. For our last segment today, we turn to Jan Hawken in conversation with historian Carol Anderson, considering the fascist threat in the U.S. and the racist, sexist, capitalist history out of which that threat emerges. Welcome to KBU, Dr. Carol Anderson. Thank you so much for having me. You are professor of African American Studies at Emory University and the author of five books, including White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide, which won the 2016 National Book Critics Circle Award for Criticism. Uh, You've received a long list of awards and tributes for your scholarship on racism and struggles for racial justice. So it's an honor to have you on the Old Mole Variety Hour today. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Well, I met you earlier this month at the annual meetings of the American Historical Association, where you spoke on a panel titled ominously, Is the United States Turning Toward Fascism? And in your talk, you spoke about the January 6th attack on the Capitol and how you understand the history behind this form of violence in the in the United States. Can, can we start there with your analysis of January 6th and then how you approached that day, some call this horrific, unprecedented day of violence on the Capitol through the, through the lens of history? I see the January 6th insurrection as being part of a long history of anti-Black violence, a history and a fear of a multiracial democracy, a fear of African-Americans asserting and using, deploying their citizenship rights, their right to vote, for instance. And you hear, when you think about the language we heard moving up to January 6th, we heard about this big lie of this stolen election, right? But where where did they identify the theft is coming from? They said they stole the election in Atlanta. They stole it in Philadelphia. They stole it in Detroit. They stole it in Milwaukee. And so they're identifying these cities that have sizable black populations. And those black populations are the ones that they say 
committed the theft. They stole something precious and valuable from hardworking Americans. And Americans in that language is coded white. So you have these black people as thieves. And so black and criminality has been something that has been ongoing in this nation in terms of linking those two things together. And so they stole the election. These black people stole the election. So when you have a Rudy Giuliani talking about these two poll workers in Fulton County, Georgia, which in Fulton County is Atlanta, and he's describing these women who were civic workers, right, doing civic engagement, really trying to do the work of democracy. He describes them as basically passing around ballots as if it was cocaine and heroin, describing these women as drug dealers. Again, you begin to get that kind of linkage of blackness with criminality. And so what you saw then was an overwhelmingly white mob attack the Capitol to take our country back. And that was to take it back from those people who stole the election from us, who stole democracy from us. And so the root of, of racism, the root of white supremacy, and the fear of a viable, functioning, multiracial democracy is foundational to me to understand what January 6th was about. So part of the panel that you were part of took up this question of fascism. And of course, you have a bunch of historians at all these panels. Half of the talk is defining your terms. Right. Because fascism has been around for a very long time as a slur to slap on your opponents. How do you see this as part of, and I think the idea of turning toward fascism or turning fascism, say it's better to use it an adjective, downplays the longer history of fascist organized groups as well as fascistic movements. How do you see January 6th in the context of questions now about fascism in the United States or the turn toward fascistic movements? I see it again as part and parcel of this larger fear of, of African-Americans asserting and deploying their citizenship rights. And so we saw that it is a, a reverence towards violence and a willingness to use violence. This is part of what we saw in the rise of Jim Crow. When you had sizable black populations in these Southern states and the fear that these black men, because at the time only men could vote, that these black men would, would basically, you would have what they called Negro domination, that these black men would take over these governments. And so one of the ways to get at that was through violence. Another key element in this was to have respected leaders in society championing this violence and identifying African-Americans as the enemy. So when you have, again, when you have a Trump say that he is going to send his followers to Atlanta, to Philadelphia and to Detroit to guard the vote, that is, again, identifying those cities where the vote needs to be guarded by his followers. And then you also have the willingness to bend the law so that the law, you don't have the rule of law, but what you have is the law being deployed against certain people, against the people who have been identified as the enemy and allowing that law to just overlook the violence that is raining down on black folk. So when you have these lynchings, when you have these massacres, when you have these ethnic cleansings, where, where you have entire black communities wiped out, you don't have the law coming in saying, uh-uh, we're going to hold you accountable for this. And so you get the lack of accountability. So you get the shredding of the rule of law. You get the heralding of violence. You get political leaders identifying who is the enemy. And that enemy is often racialized. You also have this, this what happened in the rise of Jim Crow, the reframing of education. So history is no longer really history. History is deployed in ways that whitewashes it so that you get that slavery was a benevolent institution and that the Negroes were happy when they were enslaved. And you get the lost cause, that it wasn't that the South attacked the United States to destroy the United States of America in order to maintain slavery. It's a certain kind of nostalgia. Yes, it's a nostalgia for what they call the good old days. And it was the good old days of racial oppression. It was the good old days of slavery. It was the good old days where, it, you know, I, I go where, where Archie Bunker goes, where girls were girls and men were men. So everybody knew their 
their place. It was about what is your place. And so it is about a racial hierarchy and also a gendered hierarchy. And so that is that is that is what we had during the rise of Jim Crow, because we also had a coup during that era. We, in 1898 in Wilmington, North Carolina, there was a government, a multiracial government that was voted in. So this is a democratic government, small d, a democratic government voted in by the people. White supremacists hated this government. They were angered that black men had power and they were angered that there were white folks who believed that black people should have power, should have political power, should have a say in the way the government is run. And so they staged a coup. They said, we are going to choke Cape Fear with the carcasses of these black folk. About 60 African-Americans were wiped out in this coup. And then the mob rolled in and then took over the government. They basically told the chief of police to leave. They told the mayor to leave and they told the city councilman to leave. Basically get on a train and get out of here or we'll kill you too. That's a coup. And then when you have the governor of North Carolina looking at them going, hello, Mr. Mayor, as if the coup did not happen, as if these weren't people who had just usurped the power and the authority of a democratic elected government but treated them as if they were legitimate. That is also part of the way that this works. You talk about backlash in some of your work, and it's a term that it's become kind of an all-purpose idiom that can be a very discouraging term that every progressive movement, you had the backlash against second wave feminism, the Black Lives Matter movement was followed by, you know, a predictable right-wing backlash as predictable as the sunrise. And that's part of, as I understand it, your the subtitle of your book, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide, and the question of who's really angry and who's you know, black people are often cast, why are you so angry? Well, who's really angry? Right. And but does this idea of a backlash against the gains and progress of people of color or the oppressed in general, is, is that potentially cancel out any notion of, you know, Martin Luther King's historical arc toward justice? How, how do you see that? Because I think that can be discouraging for young activists to say whatever, it's a Sisyphus kind of situation, whatever we make gains will be pushed back. Okay, so let me phrase it in terms of the alternative. You've got an oppressive system and you don't fight back. You don't resist. You just acquiesce to it. How is that any better? How is that any better to basically seed your soul that way, to seed your power, to seed your future? And I mean C-E-D-E as in give up. So resistance is the way that we get better, that we get closer to that moral arc of the universe. And this is what we're seeing. To me, the history of America is the history of an aspirational nation. We hold these truths to be self-evident. And that history is the way that people have fought all along to make that aspiration real. Part of the problem is that we have some politicians who try to treat that aspiration as an achievement, as if we're already there. And so when they treat it as an achievement, when folks say black lives matter, or when women say we've got reproductive rights, they're like, why are you belly aching? Why are, why are you complaining? You're always complaining. It's never enough for you. It's never enough. And then so new laws come in place to block those aspirations. But we must fight back. And that's what's so essential. And, and part of that means we have to know our history. We have to know our history. We have to know what's worked in the past. We have to know what does what didn't work. We have to understand the power of divide and conquer, which is a way that co these coalitions for resistance have been basically neutralized. We have to know that. And we have to know what our goal is. We have to know our goal is, is to recognize our full humanity so that we can fly, that we don't have these things that weigh us down, that stop us from living into our full selves. You know, part of learning from our history, which which I, I think is so important, not just moving on to the next struggle, but how do we evaluate strategies that have failed, strategies that have succeeded, you know, what have been the dilemmas of movements, and a lot of young activists point to how many people come into power with the support of progressives and social justice movements and then fail them over and over again. And of course, we're seeing this now 
in this country with the tremendous disappointment of our political leaders. And of course, often these political leaders are way to the right now. The people who run the country are much more conservative than the overall populace. But what would you say to movement activists who say, you know, we get in line, we knock on doors, we vote, we get out for these people, and they disappoint us over and over. They become part of the the machinery that reproduces a system, maybe a, a bit softer, fewer violent edges, but basically the same. And I'd say, one, you have to know how the system works. And so I think about the 2010 midterm election. There was this massive disappointment in Obama because he hadn't parted the Red Sea, he hadn't walked on water, and he hadn't fed the multitude, right? And so you had a number of, of liberals, of progressives who stayed home. That was the year that you had this massive change in state governments, the red state takeover, which then led to the redrawing of gerrymandered maps. And it led to the, in the state capitals, you had this legislation coming through that was about voter suppression, that was about really heightened ending reproductive rights and about loosening up gun laws. All of the things that progressives say, oh, and about, about basically trying to weaken legislation dealing with, with, with environmental protections and basically allowing climate change to run rampant. That happens, this is what happens when we stay home because these are folks, because of the way they drew the maps that we can't get to them regularly via voting. But, but if we hadn't stayed home, we would have had a very different kind of circumstance. We would have very different kinds of leaders in power, leaders you can get to, leaders you can negotiate with. And hold accountable. And that you could hold accountable. And so, so much of what we did in the 2010 decade and what we're doing right now is we're fighting a rear guard action because we, we stayed home because we didn't get everything that we wanted by 2010 without really looking at the kind of system that was set up to make it doggone near impossible for Obama to part the Red Sea. So when you, when you have basically a, a Senate that says, we're going to make sure he's a one-term president. So we're going to obstruct, 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 obstruct. We have to recognize what that means. It's just like the kind of so-called disappointment in, in Biden because the student loan thing didn't go through. Why didn't the student loan forgiveness go through? Because you had Republican attorneys general and then you had a Republican dominated Supreme Court basically say that Biden didn't have the authority to do that. So you have the Republicans wiping away Biden's efforts to reduce the student loan debt. And so that, that young folk could be able to live without that massive burden on top of them. I mean, so this is part of what we have to understand. And it's also to understand when we stay home, that Supreme Court is a function of us not being there. That Supreme Court is a function of, of having a Republican-dominated Senate and a Republican as the president who then appointed these folks from the Federalist Society that were all about what they call basically originalism. Right. So, so what did the Constitution say when it was written? Well, you know, there were some folks who weren't able to vote when that Constitution was written. Among other uh, problems. Among other problems. Right, yeah. right. And so it is understanding how this system works. And it is really engaging with it. When we take our, our ducks and go home, really bad, bad things happen. So look at the trauma of the Dobbs decision. Look at the trauma of the Shelby County v. Holder decision, which then led to a wave of voter suppression laws. So those voter suppression laws were in place in 2016. And that is how Donald Trump won. Black voter turnout went down by 7% in that election. You're not only talking about, as I understand you, getting out and voting on election day as important as that is, but a broader voting rights social movement campaign and organizing as communities and movements that envision a, a different world and are refused to be intimidated by these fascists or whatever you want to call them. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And so it means then knowing what legislation is coming through. 
It means contacting your representatives. It means knowing what's happening at your school board when they're when they're trying to ban books, ban books on Roberto Clemente, ban books on Anne Frank, ban books on on Ruby Bridges, banning books. It's like they're really trying to recreate the good old days. And I put those in air quotes of Nazi Germany in so many ways, where you have this racial hierarchy, where you have this anti-immigrant, really vicious bias, where you have this sense of gendered hierarchy, where you've got patriarchy just dominating the system, where you have a love of militarism that sees violence as cleansing, where you have basically a racial ideology that sees the nation, the white nation as pure, and that anybody else poisons the blood of that nation. That's the longing for the bad old days. There are a lot of anxieties and defenses holding that whole worldview together. And I suppose the other side of the story that you address in your own work is that that there's another way, another vision of history and another way of looking at America as a project and a, a history that's been produced by people of color, by workers, by the labor movement, by women, and that there are histories to claim and a, a different vision of the future that we have to fight for. And I appreciate your fighting for that different world. And you're saying, don't give up. <laughs> don't give up. And it's worth it. It's worth it. If, if you begin to think about what it looks like when we don't engage, ooh, when you think about what it looks like, because over centuries we have engaged. And this is what has opened up this nation. And this is what the the backlash really is about. This is what the fight is about. It is about a different vision of America. So there is that vision that most of us have of a vibrant, multiracial, multilingual, multireligious, multiethnic nation. And then there is that other vision, that Trumpian vision, that is what I call a heron-evoked democracy, where you have the veneer of a democracy. But it is about having this vast, rightless labor pool that generates enormous resources Resources. But those resources then just flow up to a small strata of whites. And then there's another strata of whites who are told that they too can be, partake in this wealth, but they just need to do A, B, C, D, and E. And it's because they, they can't have it because of those folks who are, who are just working, 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 working. So that vast rightless labor pool is what you hear when you hear, we've got too many regulations. When you hear them trying to lower the age for child labor, vast rightless labor pool generating enormous resources that goes up to a small strata of Americans. It's a very impoverished worldview. Yes, and it's a world that does enormous damage, enormous damage, where when you think about what could happen if you could get a quality education regardless of your zip code, wow, where you were paid a living wage, wow, where you had real health insurance and didn't have to worry about going broke if you got ill and you had the ability to stay healthy. Wow. Where you had real clean drinking water. Oh my gosh. I mean, just you had access, real access to the resources of this incredibly rich, vibrant nation. So this is why the right wing requires identifying a racial other as the enemy, as the threat to the ability to for good, honest, hardworking Americans to be able to to thrive. No, 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 no. Yeah. Well, Dr. Carol Anderson, I so much appreciate your being here with me today on the Olmo Variety Hour for your work, for your life, and your spirit, your refusal to be discouraged. I'm sure you have your your discouraged, depressing moments, but you're an inspiration to so many. And I continue to follow your work. Is there a particular work of yours you'd like people to read and that we can highlight? I think One Person No Vote, the book that's about voter suppression, because part of the, the white rage backlash to the 2020 election was this wave of voter suppression laws that are cloaked in the language of protecting democracy, cloaked in the language of election integrity, and cloaked in the language of stopping massive rampant voter fraud. But what one person no vote lays out is how much of that is a lie and how we need to know how this works, how we're being suckered into believing we're protecting democracy when what we're 
actually doing is denying American citizens the right to vote. And perhaps reading that book, but also getting together with others to discuss it. So yes, I yes. appreciate that that reading suggestion as we go into a daunting year of electoral politics where we need to be equipped. <laughs> yes, we need to be equipped. And so, and so we, we need to know, this is to me, this is the power of history. We need to know what happened. So when folks are telling us a lie, we can say, uh-uh, that's, that's not how that went down. No, X, Y, Z happened, actually. Thank you so much for being with me today on the Normal Variety Hour here on KBU, Dr. Carol Anderson. And uh, thank you so much for having me. El amigo de todo, no amigo de nadie. Cántalo suave, lucha de clase. Cómo se hace la clave y el paso y la llave para que todo esto se acabe. Todo se cae, todo se sabe. Irak, Haití, Chile combate. A liberar este mundo completo si tocan a uno. That was Anna Tijoux performing Antifa Dance. And before that, Jan Hawken and Carol Anderson discussing fascism, white nationalism, and U.S. history. You have been listening to the Old Mole Variety Hour on KBOO Portland. As always, you can find the whole show and its segments with additional links and information at kboo.fm slash Hour, where you can listen again, subscribe, share, and join KBOO by clicking on the red Donate tab in the upper right corner of the page. Remember that 80% of KBOO's funding comes from listeners, and we cannot do this without you. I'm Fran Michelle, I've been your host for this episode, and I could not do this without everyone else at KBOO, and especially the other volunteers and guests on today's show. Thanks to Patricia Kulberg and Norm Diamond for their segment on abortion access in Portland before it was legal. And thanks also to Patricia for Old Mole organizing and to Norm for editing. Thanks to Matt Witt for his discussion of the Canadian series Little Bird. Thanks to Jan Hawken and her guest Carol Anderson for their discussion of the long history of white nationalism and fascist insurrections in the U.S. and the importance of fighting back. Thanks to Joe Clement for his performance of our theme song, Thanks to all the staff, volunteers, and listener members of KBOO. The Old Mole will be back next Monday with more news, views, reviews, and interviews from the Mole's Grounds Roots perspective. We'll go out with Anna Tijoux singing Antipatriarcha. de todas depende de cómo tú me apodas pero no voy a ser la que obedece porque mi cuerpo me pertenece yo decido de mi tiempo como quiero y donde quiero independiente yo nací independiente decidí yo no camino detrás de ti yo camino de la para ti Portland on 90.7 FM and streaming on the web at kboo.fm. Hey, KBOO listeners. KBOO cut through the clouds during our end-of-year campaign thanks to support from listeners like you. When we meet our campaign goals, we can continue to bring you colorful, radiant rays of radio. Thank you, and keep tuning in for unique music, cutting-edge news, and transformative public affairs on the airwaves. Hey, Michael here. I'm with the Tin Can Phone Podcast, a radio show where you can hear about the influence incarceration has straight from the source. We tell you the story from the inside out, so make sure to check us out on KBU Community Radio every first Tuesday at 10 a.m. Hi, this is Peter Himmelman. You're listening to KBU Community Radio 90.7. <laughs>